This uh, hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and uh, thank you so much for being here. I'll introduce you in one moment. Um, I want to thank the other committee members for their interest. We have convened this hearing to understand how U.S. leadership can best be deployed to deal a mortal wound to modern slavery. Last week, the committee heard from two panels of private witnesses. We received testimony from leaders in the effort to combat modern slavery. We also heard from brave individuals who escaped from modern slavery and went on to help others. Today, we welcome Dr. Sarah Sewell, um, who I've heard many good things about, the Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights at the U.S. Department of State. State Department's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons falls under your purview, and we appreciate your efforts. Conflict exposes vulnerable people, especially women and children, to being enslaved and exploited. The horrifying examples set by ISIL and Boko Haram could not be starker. But even in countries with laws and institutions, insidious forms of modern slavery exist. Perversely, labor recruiters extract money from impoverished people with empty promises and deliver them into bondage and sexual exploitation. For 14 years, as defined and authorized by Congress, the State Department has issued an annual report on trafficking in persons. This report, as Secretary Kerry has said, sets the gold standard. The report reviews the efforts of countries to address trafficking persons, especially in the most severe forms. Its findings are not always welcome, but we know they've made a difference. Undersecretary Sewell has said that almost every issue she touches has implications for human trafficking. Whether working with the Bureau of Counterterrorism, Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, population migration and refugees, international narcotics and law enforcement affairs, conflict and stabilization operations. Often, there's a trafficking angle. Today, we hope to learn how U.S. leadership is already making a difference and how working in partnership with the State Department and reaching out to like-minded governments, we can take our efforts to the next level and to find the best way forward to begin the process in earnest of putting an end to modern slavery. Thank you, and with that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, uh, Bob Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your focus in addressing the issue of trafficking in all of its forms. Uh, sexual exploitation, forced labor, forced marriage, debt bondage, and the sale and exploitation of children around the world should be a global cry for justice. But as Benjamin Franklin said, justice will not be served into those, until those of us who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Today, we're all outraged at the violence, psychological terror, the greed that drives human trafficking. We're outraged that there are 50 million refugees and displaced people around the world, the largest number since World War II, many of whom are targets of traffickers. We're outraged that there are 21 million victims of human trafficking, over 5 million of whom are children and that forced labor generates about $150 plus billion in profits annually, the second largest income source for international criminals next to the drug trade. We know that NGOs and civil society have been doing what they can to combat this scourge, but we can all do more. The State Department's Office of Trafficking in Persons has been nothing less than extraordinary, but it remains understaffed, under-resourced, and without leadership leaving Undersecretary Sewell's efforts all the more important. Certainly, government can do better. Companies can do more. They can clean up the supply chains and make that information public. The public can be more aware of who picks the fruit on their breakfast cereal in the morning, how many women and children it took trapped in a sweatshop to sew the dresses and shirts they're wearing. In my view, reform of the labor recruitment process and the regulation of labor recruiters is crucial to helping enslave Bangladeshi women serving as domestic servants in the Middle East, construction workers from Nepal building World Cup soccer stadiums in Qatar, or Rohingya men strapped, uh, trapped, I should say, on Thai shrimp boats supplying American fish markets. Those are just some of those elements. And finally, Mr. Chairman, uh, let me just say I'm also outraged at the scourge of diplomats who themselves are trafficking domestic workers bringing them to the United States to work in embassies and missions here in Washington uh, and around the world. We had a case like this in my home state of New Jersey. I won't get into it right now, but I look forward to seeing what we're doing in that regard as well. And I look forward to hearing our witnesses. 
Thank you, Senator Menendez, and thank you for your shared interest in this issue and your comments. And now we'll turn to our witness. Our witness today is Dr. Sarah Sewell, the Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. She was sworn in as Undersecretary on February the 20th, 2014, and serves concurrently as a special coordinator for Tibetan issues. Over the previous decade, Dr. Sewell taught at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where she also served as director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, launched the MARO Project, Mass Atrocities Response Operations. In 2012, she was Minerva Chair at the Na Naval War College. During the Clinton administration, Dr. Sewell served as the inaugural Deputy Assistant of S Secretary of Defense for Peacekeeping and Humanitarian Assistance. Humanitarian assistance. Prior to joining the executive branch, she served six years as the senior foreign policy advisor to U.S. Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell. I want to thank you for being here, and uh, you've had a very distinguished career. You're either really, really qualified or cannot keep a job, but uh, you've done a lot of different things, but uh, I think it's the, the first. Thank you for being here and sharing your testimony, and uh, we'll remind you that your full statement will be entered into the record. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chairman Corker, Senator Menendez, uh, members of the committee, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today, and I want to begin by thanking you and many members of this committee for their leadership in uh, combating trafficking in persons. And on behalf of the State Department, I look forward to working closely with you to tackle this terrible crime and human rights abuse. I think it's fair to say that trafficking in persons and the efforts to combat it is a personal priority of the Secretary. It's certainly a personal priority of mine and it's a priority for the State Department and this administration. It harms people and communities. It corrupts labor markets and global supply chains. It undermines the rule of law and stability. And in today's global community, we're all as citizens and as consumers impacted by slavery even if we do not realize it. I recently took a survey on the slaveryfootprint.org and it was a stark reminder that many of the products I use on a daily basis, the battery in my cell phone, the chocolate that I eat, the cotton clothes that I wear, may have been produced by slaves. Slavery Footprint has reached millions of consumers globally, giving them a voice to demand that the products they buy are made free of forced labor. It's seed funded by the State Department, therefore one example of the types of programs that we're supporting to elevate the global conversation on modern slavery. The US government is making major efforts here at home to combat this scourge. As the largest purchaser of goods and services in the US and overseas, the American government must set the highest standards for its business practices. Executive Order 13627, uh, was the president's executive order committing to strengthening protections against human trafficking in federal contracting. The Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council published updates to the Federal Acquisition Regulation implementing this order. In addition, the State Department funded Verite, a labor rights NGO, to develop a range of tools and resources for federal contractors and businesses to help them mitigate the risks of human trafficking in their supply chains. We've come a long way, Mr. Chairman, in the last 15 years. 166 states are now party to the Palermo Protocol. Human trafficking has moved from a misunderstood side issue to an international priority. Over 100 countries have passed anti-trafficking laws, and many have established specialized law enforcement units, victim assistance mechanisms, and public awareness campaigns. But of course, much work remains. Although the ILO estimates that there are 21 million victims of forced labor around the world, the State Department's Trafficking in Persons Tip Report notes that fewer than 45,000 trafficking victims had been identified by governments in the year 2014. Convictions of traffickers remains woefully insufficient. Adequate anti-trafficking laws are an important first step to address the troubling trend, but these laws must be enforced and traffickers held accountable. Aware and capable states are the key to tackling this crime, an issue to which I shall return. Now, as you know, the TIP report has been a critically important tool. The report assesses the adequacy of national laws in prohibiting and punishing trafficking, and it evaluates government actions to prosecute suspects and protect victims. The report's tier rankings help hold governments accountable in their efforts to develop policies and structures to fight this crime. 
researchers have documented the correlation between tier ranking downgrades and states' subsequent enactment of anti-trafficking legislation. The TIP report makes specific recommendations for how each country can better prevent trafficking, prosecute suspected perpetrators, and assist victims. And these recommendations, in turn, guide US diplomacy, and they serve as a roadmap for institutional changes. Additionally, the State Department and USAID combine anti-trafficking and labor rights diplomacy with specific programming to help countries achieve better results. State's TIP office currently oversees 98 projects worth over $59 million in 71 countries. And these projects target both sex and labor trafficking through implementation of what is known as the 3P paradigm, prevention, protection of victims, and prosecution of suspected traffickers. Much of our anti-trafficking assistance helps partner governments build their own capacity. So in the last two years, Botswana, Haiti, Maldives, Papua New Guinea, Seychelles, all passed anti-trafficking laws. And last March, the Bahamas secured its first conviction. Since 2001, USAID has programmed over approximately 180 million in anti-trafficking activities in 70 countries and regional missions. And in Jordan, USAID integrated counter-trafficking activities into a broader human rights program in combating sexual and gender-based violence, early marriage, and child labor among Syrian refugees and host communities. 2013, Congress saw fit to give the State Department a new innovative tool, the Child Protection Compacts. Through the partnership, we'll develop tailored policies to focus on one particular case, and I'm pleased to announce today that we have proposed our first partner in that CPC partnership, which is to work with the government of Ghana. The struggle against modern slavery is one of the interconnected threats and opportunities. It involves good governance, and the broader work of state and AID in partnership with other actors is just vital if we're to truly tackle this global challenge. Conflict, corruption, and underdevelopment fuel trafficking risks, and the U.S. government works to address these underlying causes as part of our foreign policy, even as we have pioneered innovative programs specifically aimed against human slavery. I'm very proud, Mr. Chairman, of the leading role the United States has played with strong leadership from Congress in elevating the global profile of this issue, helping free individuals from modern slavery, and galvanizing the work of others. The road is long in our battle against human trafficking, but working with global partners, the United States will not relent in our multi-pronged approach to combat the crime. We welcome Congress's interest, we welcome your interest, particularly Mr. Chairman, and we look forward to working together and to the dialogue. Thank you. Thank you for that great testimony, and the bulk of uh, the State Department's activities, programmatic and funding, actually falls under your purview, and I know there's a number of different entities that are dealing with this. Could you share with us how they're working uh, with each other, and, uh, and is there anything that might be done to enhance their ability to do so? Uh, thank you for that question, Mr. Chairman. Um, when I came in as the Undersecretary, one of my goals was to create greater synergy and effectiveness and focus across the different uh, bureaus and offices within my undersecretariat. And we've been working diligently over the year in which I have uh, had the privilege of serving the U.S. government to achieve just that. We have a number of priorities that we've identified for uh, the, the J undersecretariat, but we are working across, across the board to ensure closer conversation among all entities, programming coordination at the outset, and layered approaches to problems. So let me give you a couple of examples of the ways in which different elements within the State Department are, even though they do not have trafficking in their title, working in support of uh, the TIP office and its goals. INL provides some $4 million to help train law enforcement personnel, prosecutors, and judges to investigate and prosecute trafficking crimes. And this training includes both direct training on trafficking in persons, but it's also incorporated into training on rule of law, anti-corruption, law enforcement, border security, or criminal justice. Sometimes this is provided by DHS or international organizations, such as uh, UNDOC or IOM. The anti-trafficking training is also included in the international law enforcement academies. They're known as ILEAs, and they are scattered around the world, and so that's another institutional way to spread both awareness and skills to combat uh, the trafficking problem. The Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor also uh, promotes internationally recognized labor standards. It targets forced labor directly 
It also engages stakeholders to address some of the underlying conditions that can give ride, rise to or exacerbate trafficking. So in 2013, DRL supported uh, almost $3 million of activities in Jordan, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Haiti, and East Asia Pacific. And they were working with the TIP office in that work. They're planning to fund a program that partners with private companies to encourage increased supply chain transparency, monitoring and accountability, and they'll be focusing on working conditions in that. And then the, the Bureau of Population, uh, Refugees and Migration is working closely to integrate prevention and response to human trafficking into humanitarian assistance. This has become a new way of thinking about early intervention to quickly register people, to quickly identify potential, those who are at risk and those who are potential victims and provide services early on. And that has been worked through IOM uh, as well as uh, through the Return Reintegration and Family Reunification Program for victims of trafficking, which helped 327 eligible family members join trafficking victims with T visa status in the United States and helped five survivors voluntarily return home. So these are some of the ways that a broader conversation across different bureaus and offices combine to work on different and mutually supporting elements of the problem. I know that entities like uh, DOSH and ISIL um, enslave people, and I realize this is a minor part of the 27 million people we know are affected by this, but could you tell us, do these types of entities uh, uh, help further their efforts through human trafficking? Are they taking advantage of this same kind of thing? I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because of its currency, though I thought I'd just ask. Sure. I, I think if your question is, are terrorist organizations able to exploit ungoverned space and conflict in order to uh, commit crimes of trafficking? The answer is absolutely yes. And are they doing that to fund their activities? or We don't have particularly good data on that, Mr. Chairman. I think uh, to the extent that we know that profit is made, it certainly represents profit. We don't know the extent of that profit. We don't know exactly how it is used. But clearly there is um, monetary uh, gain being made when women and children are being advertised as for sale uh, and their price lists are made available uh, through the internet. One of the things we've seen in the field is that rule of law is one of the best ways, if not the best way to combat this, where you hold perpetrators accountable. Um, do you agree that, that that is one of the best ways to deal with this issue and to curtail the activity? I, I do, Senator. The, the, the reality is that this is, that trafficking in persons is a crime and therefore the most sustainable and effective way to combat it is to encourage governments to develop the appropriate laws and the appropriate methods of ensuring justice uh, in order to both prosecute and punish those who perpetrate the crime, but also deter it in the future. And so rule of law is absolutely vital. So much of what the department does is in fact in support of a rule of law, and I see that as very integral to the anti-trafficking cause. Last week when we had a hearing, Senator Menendez and I happened to be meeting <clears throat> with a public official from a country where we knew this was an issue. And so uh, Senator Menendez actually brought it up in that meeting. And I guess one of my questions is, obviously there's ways of leveraging this, I mean, just awareness. I know as we meet with people where we know this is in their own countries, this is happening a great deal, it makes a difference. How are we leveraging through our diplomatic efforts around the world, uh, awareness and, and actually implementation of policies to, to to keep this from, to, to really cause this to be lessened? It's a great question and it's really central to the work of the State Department. I mean, the, the Trafficking in Persons Report is a tool and it's been, I think, an enormously successful tool. I'm extremely gratified by the impact that it's had, but it is also a roadmap for the day-to-day -day diplomacy that the department conducts. Um, I think that it's fair to say that that the Secretary's view is that we have an obligation to be raising trafficking issues as part of our daily discourse, and that the beauty of having the Trafficking in Persons Office within the State Department, and so focused on leveraging the tools of foreign policy and daily diplomacy, is that we can keep it on the radar screen in a way that is much more consistent and tied to um, a broader American agenda than the TIP report on its own would be able to do. And I know right now, this is my last uh, point, I guess this traffic in person's office really doesn't have um, anybody who's the ambassador at large, if you will. I assume that you've taken on those responsibilities and we can count on you to, in spite of not having someone there, to continue pursuing it heavily. 
we are, we are looking to fill that position as quickly as we can, but I will tell you that last year during the, um, the, the TIP report final process, I was deeply engaged even with an ambassador there, and I look forward to staying deeply engaged uh, in the time ahead, um, even after we have an ambassador at large. Well, thank you. Thanks for your commitment and testimony today, and Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, on November 2014th, the Government Accountability Office uh, published a report on efforts to combat trafficking on U.S. government contracts overseas, entitled Human Trafficking, Oversight of Contractors, Use of Foreign Workers in High-Risk Environments Needs to be Strengthened, is the title of the report. The GAO investigators spoke to migrant workers on U.S. contracts overseas who had paid an equivalent of up to one year's wages to unsavory recruiters in order to secure their jobs. So as we're talking about uh, trafficking and, and modern-day human slavery, I, it is pretty mind-boggling that on U.S. government contracts, we might have a, uh, an iteration of that. So how does state ensure that U.S. government contracts overseas are not used as a vehicle for trafficking workers? Um, thanks for that question, um, Senator. We are leading, for example, and we have, we have begun in the context of the executive order that I mentioned in my testimony, working first and foremost on our internal supply chain. Um, so as of the executive order, uh, and similar provisions in law, federal contractors and subcontractors, as well as their employees, are prohibited from deceiving employers about key terms and conditions of employment. They're prohibited from charging employees recruitment fees, and uh, they are prohibited from denying employees access to uh, their identity documents, as well as a host of, of other things. When federal was the date of that executive order? I'm sorry? When the, was uh, I'm not sure, to be honest, I'm not sure how to pronounce whether it's 13627 or whether it's 13627, but those are the numbers of it. It's the Federal Acquisition Regulation Rule that implements Executive Order 13627. So this is something that has been um, implemented in order to address precisely these kinds of problems. Um, federal contractors now will need to certify that they have their compliance plans in place and they will be conducting in-depth mapping of their supply chains, uh, expanding control over recruitment schemes, making available safe and independent grievance mechanisms, um, and we'll continue to be engaging on this issue, including in the context of our ongoing work to develop a national action plan on responsible business. All right, well, I'm, I'm informed that this was, uh, the executive order was even before the GAO's report, but uh, as in anything, enforcement, we can have all the laws in the world and all the executive orders in the world, it's enforcement that, that matters in order to send a very clear message that we would, as a government, not tolerate in our own supply chain having that. So I, I hope we're gonna pay particular attention to that. How does the, the Department of State work with its partners to strengthen source country uh, policies, for example, places like Bangladesh and Nepal, that uh, to prevent fraudulent recruitment practices? Because in the previous hearing that we had, it was the whole, a big element of these recruiters uh, are a big part of uh, the, the challenge we have here. And so, do we have any specific focus on that? Uh, we do, although it, so it is, yes we do, and it is both an issue of bilateral concern, but it's also an issue that we support in a more integrated way, but we are not directly running that process. So let me walk you through that. Um, we engage with both sending countries and with destination countries to underscore their responsibilities under the Palermo Protocol and to combat trafficking. And so that's a dialogue, the, the content of which is contingent on which country and what the circumstances are. But in addition, we have been encouraging those countries to have a, a, a dialogue between both sending and destination countries about how the issues interact with one another. So for example, the Colombo process is a nascent dialogue that has been developed between the Gulf countries and the South and Southeast Asian nations. A subset of that is the Abu Dhabi dialogue in which we are just beginning to facilitate that kind of um, exchange. And this is an ongoing area. I think it's an area, frankly, Senator, that we're gonna be spending more time on and more attention to because we're looking at some big focusing international events coming up that will provide a very useful forum to um, raise some issues that, uh, that are very important to raise. 
And so it's an area in which I'm looking forward to engaging with others in the State Department to, to focus more on. Okay. Now, the, the trafficking in persons report we've all recognized has a significant, is a significant tool in our efforts here. Uh, and the chairman referred to the fact that we have no ambassador at large in that role. So I assume that your answer to him uh, is that you're personally going to protect the integrity of the uh, trip report overall, and especially with regard to particular countries that may be subject to intense political pressure within the building? Um, yes, I was involved in the process last year. I'm very proud of the process that transpired last year. I look forward to participating in a similarly, uh, uh, in a process that has similar integrity this year. Are there particular countries whose trends you find concerning? Uh, I think it best to, um, to say that we are compiling data on, uh, on the countries and that it's very hard for us to identify trends until we get the full amount. Um, as you will be aware, at the end of a reporting period, we tend to get a whole lot more data than we necessarily got along the way. So I think it might be premature to talk about trends, but I think in general, we've, we've seen trends going in both directions, and, uh, and that's one of the biggest advantages of having the annual report process, is that we're able to then reflect that in the findings. Uh, I hope when you do the report that you would share with the committee insights as to trends that you see developing, which whatever those trends may, may be, would be very helpful. Finally, according to the State Department's own uh, trafficking in persons report, the government of Cuba does not fully comply with the minimum standards for the elimination of trafficking and is not making significant efforts to do so. It continues to be a source country for adults and children subjected to sex trafficking and conscripts doctors and medical personnel to work overseas under conditions that resemble forced labor. As a matter of fact, that happens to be the number one source of income uh, to the Castro regime, is forcing doctors to go abroad and work and then having the payment for those doctors sent back to Cuba. So between that and Voyera magazine had an article, Sex Trafficking Capital of the World, several uh, years uh, back, about Cuba. Can you tell me uh, whether or not trafficking has been raised and prioritized uh, throughout the administration's new engagement with Havana? Yes, absolutely. Um, and how so? So first of all, we have been in an ongoing dialogue with Cuban government officials. We've met on multiple occasions over the past year to share information on efforts to combat human trafficking. And we expect that that engagement will continue and deepen over time because we do share a commitment to addressing it. But as you said, government complicity in trafficking is, is one of the most nefarious and troubling aspects of trafficking in persons. And so um, that doesn't mean that this will be an easy conversation, but it will be, as all dialogues are, frank and open. We would like to take advantage of any opening that we have to uh, prompt the Cuban authorities to make progress on trafficking. Uh, but the problems, as you pointed out, are severe. Uh, I would note, Mr. Chairman, that the Secretary's response suggests that the government is complicit in trafficking, and that makes it all the more, uh, in my mind, one thing is to have a blind eye to what is happening in your country. The other thing is to be complicit in the trafficking, and that's the rea reality of Cuba. Thank you for your answer. Thank you, sir. Uh, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you for the hearing again. Uh, thank you, Madam Undersecretary, for being here today. And I, I believe uh, the, United, uh, the United States should set an example on eradicating the scourge of modern-day slavery and human trafficking worldwide, that we need to set that example. Um, we have to be the example here at home so that we can show our, our partners abroad that we have done the work ourselves that we need to. Uh, that's why I'm concerned that right here in the United States, the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline received nearly four times as many calls uh, in 2013, as recently as 2013, as they did in 2008, with calls rising from 5,748 to 20,000, almost 21,000 calls in 2013 alone. During the last week's panel, uh, the witness from Humanity United stated in his written testimony that estimates suggest that as many as 300,000 U.S. children and youth are at risk of being trafficked into the commercial uh, sex trade. Um, I mentioned last week as well work that we have done in Colorado with the Colorado Organization for Victims Assistance. They're 100% funded right now, I believe, through the Office for Victims of Crime. They've done a lot of work with a number of victims of modern-day slavery and 
uh, continue to work as well as a subcontractee for the United States Committee on Refugees and Immigrants. And I think there's an issue that they're trying to work out right now uh, through this committee as an OVC uh, grantee and whether or not they can utilize uh, the refugee and immigrant funding for uh, OVC victims in the grantee office. So perhaps we could talk a little bit about some of those issues as well as we work through that and get your help with, uh, with justice on this. Um, they've done a lot of work in terms of setting and meeting the metrics required to, to help assure funding is going toward victims of, of trafficking. Uh, would you agree, though, that we need to do more here in the United States to increase our efforts to combat human trafficking so that we can better be a better example abroad? Um, well, it, I, will, I will begin by expressing humility in the sense that, that, that domestic trafficking is not my focus uh, as Understand. a State Department official. Um, and as with any truly egregious human rights violation, there is almost always more that can be done. Um, I think one of the difficulties that we have, again, in, in dealing with many of the problems that are where, where victims are often hidden, where there's sometimes uh, a real uh, sense of shame that's associated with being a victim, um, where there are uh, multiple layers that can keep people entrapped in slavery. It's sometimes very difficult both to understand the extent of the problem and then to understand when we learn more whether that means there is an increase or whether that means that more people have become emboldened to tell their story and seek help. So um, I, 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 I appreciate your concern and I am, I'm confident that, that whatever we can do to help victims, of which there are many, um, will be welcomed. Um, I, I, I can't speak to um, anything more specific than that about the domestic. Situation. No, thank you. I understand. And are you familiar with the, the, the tier three list of countries uh, in, in the reports that talk about uh, their responses to trafficking? Generally speaking, I would probably have to refresh myself, but I can flip to the appropriate sure. tab. No problem. Um, you know, these are the most persistent violators uh, of U.S. anti-human trafficking laws and subject to U.S. sanctions under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, including the withdrawal of non-humanitarian, non-trade-related foreign assistance. Uh, there's a letter here from the White House dated September 18th, 2014. It mentions several nations, whether it's uh, Cuba, uh, Russia, others, in terms of tier, tier three sanctions. Uh, could you talk about the economic impact that these sanctions have had on the targeted countries uh, and how much U.S. assistance to these states has been blocked? Uh, sure, I can. Um, do you want me to run through? Just a, it, it, maybe for perhaps a few highlights. I mean, for instance, uh, Cuba is listed here. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia is listed here, just perhaps sure. on, on tier three. Um, so the restrictions on educational and cultural exchanges for Cuba were waived. Um, in many cases, the restrictions, the full restrictions apply, but in many cases, these countries have also been sanctioned for other reasons, so there is no additional tangible impact, but nonetheless, they have not been waived, so um, it, it is country by country. So, I mean, are, are, if, if they've already been sanctioned for other causes and we're sanctioning them again under this, are they effective? Are they accomplishing what we're trying to do, or are there other things that we need to be doing? Well, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure that it's the, the sanctions per se that have the impact, although, again, it's very specific country by country. I think that um, the, the real impact of the TIP report lies with countries that, um, that recognize that they're failing their citizens and see the designation and the criticism as an impetus to make change. So um, I think there is, there is value. We have many ways of engaging. The TIP report is one tool. Sanctions are another tool. Um, sanctions are going to matter to some countries more than others, and they're going to matter for different reasons. I think personally that it is the, the, the way the U.S. has been able to play a leading role in elevating this, this international norm and then hold countries that purport to be committed to international norms to realize them, as the senator was saying, the difference between having a law and enforcing a law, or the difference between saying that you've signed the protocol and then implementing the law. I think those in many ways are the most tangible results that we have. So I've been, um, to be perfectly honest, um, astonished by the impact that many elements of the whole TVPA have had. And they play different roles in different contexts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Shane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Under Secretary Sewell, it's nice to see you back in the government. Um, Great to I had see an you, Senator. Yes. 
we had an opportunity to work together at the Kennedy School, and uh, I saw the great work that you did there. And I actually want to, it was really hearing from students at the Kennedy School that I think first opened my eyes to the issue of trafficking and persons. Um, I hadn't really been aware and it hadn't crystallized as something that was occurring in um, the prevalence that it does around the world until I listened to some of those young people talking about it. And so what more can we do? You've talked about the, the programs that the State Department is doing to address trafficking, but what more can we do to make people aware of the extent to which this is an issue and the need for all of us to be aware of it and um, to call attention if we see anything that we think is a, uh, contributes to trafficking? Thanks for that question. I think for many people, the access point for for the emotional and intellectual connection to trafficking really is an individual story. And I think one of the things that's been interesting to me, just as I move around in the subway in Washington and I see the blue campaign pictures and you can imagine the story of this person, I think those are very effective ways that we have found to raise general awareness. Some of the work that the State Department has funded to catalyze social media tools, like the slavery footprint example that I mentioned, are also um, extremely useful. I think that, that as we, if, that it is very valuable as we put a human face on the trafficking problem that we then tie that to other problems that are more abstract. So, you know, we can talk about failed states and ungoverned space, but what does it allow? This is what it allows. You know, um, like you, when I met with uh, Yazidis um, who were, um, who their community was subject to horrible uh, human rights abuse, including trafficking and sexual slavery, um, you know, their, their story ties that particular crime to a broader conflict and tries to connect the two. So in, in what is sometimes seen as a very abstract over there foreign policy, to be honest, I see a way for trafficking to connect people to the importance of U.S. engagement internationally because it is through the voice of our government and our posts and our, and our ambassadors that we are able to represent American outrage about this crime. So I think we do it bit by bit. We do it at a lot of different layers. There's always room to do more, but I really do appreciate your, your commenting on the power of the story. I think that is part of what is, has allowed this crime to become so um, so much of a focus because because survivors tell stories and the stories are extraordinarily compelling um, and we at the State Department will continue to try to, to tell and amplify their stories. Thank you. Um, as we're talking about the products that we use in the developed world that often are um, available because of trafficked persons are we addressing that issue in, as we're looking at the two major trade agreements that we're um, negotiating now, TTIP and the TPP, and can you talk about yep. how we've addressed it in those agreements? Uh, I, can talk, um, I can talk in some detail, but some of these negotiations are still ongoing, right. so obviously I can't I appreciate uh, predict that. the future. But um, so for, for all of these, we talked about the way in which the trafficking issue relies to some extent on a, a substructure of rule of law. And part of the advantage that we have as we negotiate these trade agreements is that they are designed to, to clarify and hold to account in the formal agreement basic international labor standards. And so um, to the extent that we are trying to focus on trafficking as a particular element of violation of that regime, getting that regime in place is hugely powerful. And I think that is, that is in no small part what underlies the administration's commitment to trying to put on paper informal agreements both of these processes. And then they in turn, as we negotiate them, they become another forum and another carrot, if you will, to raise the specific issue of trafficking and another platform for pushing it. So I see it as very much consistent with the broader goals of the anti-trafficking community. That's great. And how are we working with our European allies to address this issue, and, and to what extent is it more or less prevalent in Europe than in the United States or North America? Um, I can't speak to prevalence because it's so hard to generalize country by country, transit versus source. It, 
it's hard to, to generalize. I can get you more information on that, and I'd be happy to do so. I think it's fair to say that this has become, in the same way that our engagement with countries that um, experience enormous uh, problems as a source country or as a destination country, this has become also a, a, a generic topic of collaboration with like-minded countries that are similarly concerned. And so Australia, the UK come to mind as examples where the governments are very much seized with these issues, uh, very engaged diplomatically on these issues, raising them in, in the EU context, um, working on them in the context of specific programs that they run. And it is, again, part of, of what the American people can, I think, be very proud of by raising this agenda, mm -hmm. this, this item on the international normative agenda, others have, have come to work on it in a much more applied and, and commonly articulated way. And so I think these really are multiplier effects that we're able to have working together with partners. Well, thank you very much for the great work that you and the department are doing. It is a team, and many of them are behind me, but I, on their behalf, thank you all. you're welcome. Thank you. Um, and thank you, Mr. Chairman and Senator Menendez for um, organizing this hearing. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And the uh, title of this hearing, I think, really speaks to our mission, Ending Modern Slavery, the critical priority that this must be for our country and the role of the U.S. leadership, because we know we're not going to make progress internationally if the United States does not maintain a very strong position. So I'm going to drill down a little bit on Senator Shaheen. I very much respect the work that you do and that your team does. It's critically important. Uh, you have been a, a voice for people around the world, and you've brought about significant improvements around the world, and we very much appreciate that. But as Senator Menendez said, there are certain opportunities that you have that you really got to take advantage of. Senator Menendez mentioned Cuba. There is an opportunity. We have their attention. And I must tell you, as things become more normal and trade starts, you lose that leverage. So I appreciate your answer to Senator Shaheen, and I agree with you that in the trade agreements, we hope that we'll see stronger labor protections stronger good governance, stronger anti-corruption, and enforcement of those provisions. But I, it would give me a little bit more comfort if I knew that, you, that your views concerning why Malaysia is a tier three country and a candidate for TPP, that what changes we expect to see implemented in Malaysia before a trade agreement is signed or that there is sufficient enforcement in the trade agreement being negotiated, that Malaysia won't be a tier three country enjoying a trade agreement with the United States. Can you give us that assurance? What I can do, um, Senator Cardin, as you'll appreciate, I'm not running the trade negotiations. So what I can do as a servant of the United States government, but one part of a team, is take your question back and answer it more fully in consultation with my colleagues that are running the trade negotiations, but I would be delighted to do that, sir. I thank you for that. I just would remind you that there are rumors going around here that we may be asked to vote on trade promotional authority within the next couple of weeks. So there's not a lot of time to I get understand. back to us on this. Normally, we would put in trade promotional authority what we expect to be accomplished by the trade agreements. And I could be pretty specific as it relates to trafficking. And perhaps you will help me draft language to deal with compliance with the criteria that we use in the TIP report that we could add to TPA. That might be helpful if the administration is so inclined. But I would like to have specific information Absolutely. on this. We'll get that to you. Thank you. Thank you. I would also like to have recommendations from you as to where you see how we can improve the trafficking in persons TIP report. You, you mentioned that as you get closer to the publication dates, you see activities. Mm -hmm. It would also, I think, be helpful if we could figure out how we could perhaps improve the reporting requirements uh, in an effort to make this tool, when we started a novel tool, now it's an internationally recognized tool. How can we strengthen it? Um, I'd be happy to talk about that. I think first, the first thing that I will tell you, and, and again, I'm reflecting the work of the team, is that, that from our perspective, we're always seeking to strengthen the report. One of the difficulties, and I'll say this just from my past life as an academic, is that when you have a law that has very specific requirements and you have um, a very careful um, 
system for reaching conclusions, you have to write in a way that sometimes makes it hard for the reader to do what Senator Sheen was talking about, which is really connect to viscerally to the problem. In other words, there's a lot of formula in the report. And so trying to, to harmonize the need to be very specific and responsive to the law and its requirements and creating something that is, um, that is that is more able to connect to people on a human level, I think is a constant challenge within that report. I also think that it is, um, it is, there is a danger always in compiling these reports that you have basically the same list of failings for countries that are truly challenged and they may be, they may be, they may all share the same list of challenges but three pieces may be particularly important in this country and three very different issues may be the center of the problem in another country and I think we are struggling to try to find a way to reflect that without um, not fully uh, capturing all of the data that we have. That's another tension in the report. There are some issues like child marriage that we, we, um, we think about the human rights reporting and we think about the trafficking of persons reporting and we, we wonder how best to reflect those issues. So those are ways in which we grapple with trying to make both a more useful and user-friendly report and um, we are constantly, uh, the team is constantly um, asking itself how it can improve the product. Do you know whether there's been a sharing of the standards that you use in evaluating countries under the TIP report with our trade negotiators so that they have more objective ways of determining progress made in good governance in countries dealing with trafficking? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer, but I will undertake to make sure that we do just that. Uh, if you get back to me on that, I would appreciate it. Sure. My, my last question deals with transparency. We've, some of my colleagues have already talked about that. Uh, we have found that transparency works well. Uh, we are, uh, when we look at uh, multinational companies that are, have access to our markets, uh, the, ch the, the uh, chain of supply and the companies that they've dealt with and their labor practices, et cetera, the more transparency that you can show on those issues, the, more, the less chance we'll see uh, supporting trafficking and labor particularly. Uh, is that an area in which you are also talking with the trade negotiators to make sure that we have more transparency in the countries that we're dealing with, that we don't see our multinational companies uh, supporting trafficking? Um, you know, the, we've been able to use, I'm sure you're aware of this, the transparency in a number of different contexts, you know, the extractive industries, for example, in terms of, of creating greater awareness of uh, inputs and outputs. Transparency as a general principle of governance is something that the U.S. has been extremely active on. Um, the Open Government Partnership is committed to um, basically pushing the bar up, helping countries become more transparent in all elements of governance. So I think it's fair to say that, that the U.S., uh, view in general is that is very much in accord with your own senator, which is that more transparency is helpful. Um, again, I have not had a specific conversation with the trade negotiators about that, um, but I can add that to the now fulsome roster of issues <laughs> to raise well, with. I them. appreciate that very much, and I look forward to working with you and you getting back to me. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. I know Senator Menendez had a closing question and comment. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I, you know, I want to follow up on Senator Cardin's because it, it, it boggles my mind sometimes. And uh, I know at your confirmation hearing, which I was privileged to chair, you know, there's, you're eminently qualified for the position. But sometimes in an institution like the State Department, you have to have sharp elbows. Uh, and to hear the answer about Malaysia as by way of one example, as we are negotiating, I mean, it, it should be that we have already raised the questions of countries that are on the trip report that we are contemplating negotiating with as it relates to a trade thing because the fact of the matter is, is that it undermines our, I think, our moral authority uh, to say that we're willing to do business with you, but you know, on this question, you know, we'll, you know, well, you're on our list, but we're willing to do business with you. That's that's a tough proposition. So I would hope that you would take a more activist uh, role in looking at how you take your trip report, which I think is a, we all agree is a very powerful tool, and look at other elements of our, our government 
to make sure that we are in harmony with what we're trying to pursue. Otherwise, whether it be contracting, whether it be uh, late, you know, negotiations for trade or other elements, I think we erode the very essence of what we're trying to uh, pursue. And so uh, in some, in some uh, respects, I don't want us to be duplicitous uh, uh, in, in, in the way in which we look at this, because uh, otherwise I'm not sure that we're going to achieve a goal that I know the chairman is very singularly focused on here and which I share his views on. So it's just it's an observation from my part. Senator Mendez, I think it's an excellent point. I do want to clarify that that we do distribute the TIP report. It's very much part of the whip and morph of the State Department. Typically, and this I don't mean this to be a pedantic bureaucratic answer, but I wanna I wanna dis I, I don't want to leave you with the impression that people are unaware of the report or that the issues for example, the case of Malaysia is on, it, people have not discussed it in the context of trade. I was simply asked, I was asked a question about whether I had. So the bureaucratic way this would work is that, that the regional bureaus, which work on all elements of a given country's issue, are very much aware of the TIP report because they're very deeply engaged in the adjudication process every year. They are very aware and they're working with the trade bureaus. So I just, I think it's an absolutely important point and I take Senator Cardin's exhortation for us to go and add an additional conversation from a functional lens. But those conversations do happen. They just happen separately. And I didn't want to be speaking for the department as a whole rather than my own role. So, uh, and I, and I, I understand what you're saying. But let me maybe try to crystallize my point. That a regional bureau raises the question or knowledge that the trip report says this about this country who you're negotiating with is one thing that the undersecretary for this position raises that at a level that is more among equals is a much more powerful set of circumstances. Point taken. Well, listen, I want to thank you for your efforts, and I think you've been an excellent witness. I appreciate uh, what you're doing at the State Department. Obviously, uh, we want to see things uh, move along even more quickly, and I think we're going to be working uh, towards an end here very soon that will be very complimentary to what you're doing. And uh, we thank you again for your service to our country, for being here today, for being an outstanding witness. And we look forward to working with you on a continual basis. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It was a pleasure to join you all. Thank you. Meetings adjourned.